Welcome to another episode of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Um, today we've got David Fatesnik. So, uh, David, welcome to the show. And uh, why don't you tell us a little about your uh, history and what you've done? Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me on this podcast. It's the first podcast I've been on. So, I'm, I'm a little nervous and a little excited at the same time. So, I appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm the senior IT manager at, at a startup. Uh, we are in the digital license plate uh, uh, space. Uh, nobody uh, in that space. We are the only ones that are really in that space. Uh, and so it's been, I call us, even though we are a startup, I call us a grow up. And, and the reason why we've been in uh, a startup for about uh, 12, 13 years. And uh, so that's a long time. If you will go, why so long? And you call yourself a startup. Well, when you're starting a whole new industry, uh, and has to do, you know, do with uh, the government because uh, digital license plates are a government identification. Uh, there's legislation that has to be done, and it's different for every state. Uh, you know, some states have uh, in their code uh, that a plate is metal and has to be reflective, and other ones just call it an identification. So states that that have, uh, depending on the language, it's harder to to change the law. And most states, you have to do a pilot and reassure the DMV that you're secure, that it, the product works, that can be scanned by the police, all those uh, good things to to make sure that that you're doing the right things and and uh, you can uh, create a a secure government ID that's digital. Yeah, that that's we'll have to circle back to that because as you talked about that, I just thought of some of the challenges that we have as a, a transportation organization, and like tolls and and you know the scanning of plates and things like that. If somebody doesn't have the RFID tag, so um, but um, in our earlier talks, you told me a little bit about um, the organization that you came from before you went to the startup, and. So I, I'm really interested in kind of talking about how you went from a, a large organization and all of the structure and how everything was set up there to the uh, the grow up. And um, what was the difference between those two um, environments and, and what it's like to run IT in the, those realms? Yeah, so uh, my, in my previous life, I worked for Verifone and I started at, as a desktop support guy and I started at the largest distribution center uh, for the company, uh, and um, and and so it was a really good opportunity to uh, learn uh, how the company worked. Um, it had processes, it had procedures, you know, it had uh, uh, it, it it had a lot of control, IT controls. Uh, but over the years, uh, definitely by the time I left. Uh, it was a full-fledged, large uh, company of 6,000 people that had, you know, took away uh, admin rights, that had a you know, software catalog, had an MDM solution, SCCM, uh, which I did head, uh, and then uh, we introduced even Max, and so JamF became, a, and so I was uh, on the team to help develop both of those uh, MDM solutions. Uh, so when I left, uh, we had uh, IT had everything, you know, that you the large company would have, and so then when I uh, started working for uh, Reviver, uh, uh, it, it was a, a big, huge culture shock for me. You know, uh, cords everywhere, people plugging in whatever they want, people buying software, expensing it. Uh, 
that yeah, there was no control. So it was hard to you know at first to bring structure because I I knew what structure to bring, uh, but there was a lot of rejection. Like you're going to slow me down. This is a startup. Uh, you know you can't control my computer. You can't lock it down. You. Uh, I, what do you mean I can't use this uh, this software? Well, that's uh, so there was no standardization, um, and so that it it, it was. Uh, uh, luckily, the CIO that brought me in was also from my previous company, and so he I did have backing from him, but the rest of the team it was it was really difficult to get them to embrace uh, standardization, and. Uh, and so it took some time. And I, I think one of the first things that I did uh, create standards for is an onboarding and offboarding process because there it wasn't any. It was, it was done all by email. It was done. I had a des- uh, uh, one desktop support guy. He was a contractor, uh, um, a very skilled and good guy. Uh, but there was uh, no order, and uh, and I noticed that there were a lot of the fall, there was a lot of fallout. Do they have this account set up? They needed this. Why did you not set that up? And and so quickly I realized uh, uh, this is not scalable. Uh, that we got to create. Uh, so I, you know I, I created Microsoft Forms for an onboarding process. I put together you know what door access they need, uh, what software do they need, uh, you know. Uh, uh, what uh, what access membership should they should have in Active Directory, uh, and uh, it was it was a big shock to go from a company that was you know that I supported mostly on prem, uh, you know having domain controllers at every every uh, uh, location. So I managed twelve offices in North America, and we had domain controllers at all of them. Later on, we made some of the domain domain controllers read only. Uh, but th- there wasn't any of that. And so, you know, my first thing was I, I got to get some control and get some service here. And and the CIO told me, no, we are a serverless uh, company. We don't have any servers. We had, we do everything in the cloud. And so I, I was familiar a little bit with Office 365 because uh, I, I did help roll that out in our previous company. So I did have about uh, two years worth of experience, but I wasn't the, the, full administrator uh, doing all the work uh, in, in Office 365. So here, all of a sudden, I'm at a company and you're using, uh, at the time, it was about 12 and we've gone to about 18 different platforms that are all in the cloud. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that was a big culture shock for sure. Um, How many people were, uh, were you working with at that point? And as you started to try to get this control and um setting up the the environment where with <laughs> with a distinct um lack of easily controlled um infrastructure um how many people were you working with because you just mentioned 12 to 18 platforms uh so at, at the time uh when i joined the company it was about 55 we grew to about 85 uh and then uh as a startup we ran out of money and it got back down to about 35 folks. Um, we've grown now to, to about 85 people again. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that, that was the population, which is quite, quite different than 6,000 people. And I managed, uh, North America was about 1,600. Um, so it, it was definitely, uh, you know, having one person working for me versus 12 people working for me. Uh, that was a, a kind of an adjustment uh, as well. 
Um, because before I had different people that and I, I could find their strengths to say, okay, so-and-so is really good at this. So I'll give them that. Right. But when you have one person, you, you really don't have to make that decision. It's, it's, it's myself <laughs> doing it or, or it's them doing it. That's, yeah. That's, flip a coin. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, it, 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 that was, uh, definitely a lot of adjustments. Uh, um, yeah. So, um, it, so uh, go ahead. Quick question on as you are coming in and you, and you're dealing with the serverless environment. Everybody's um, everybody's probably avoiding you in the hallway and like you're dreading you walking into their office because they they're afraid you're going to want to um, set down new controls and and keep them from being able to do their job. Um, what were the things? What were the ways that you learned to sell this to them? How did I mean? The and I'm assuming that the onboarding and offboarding. To, um, majorly or majorly wow um it was had to do with um hr mainly but then you started mentioning the access control the different services that they had the um, accounts that they're setting up so without any kind of standard or, or control around that these guys must have been spinning up services right and left Luckily, the uh, our our platform lives in AWS, and and luckily we the the there was really one person, and he was extremely he's extremely knowledgeable. So, uh, and and had security in the forefront and and cost. Um, uh, we did drive some cost out of control. For example, like telematics in our app at one time just got really out of control, and it was because a developer was paying. You know the API at, at Google Cloud uh, way too often. Every time you, you ping that, that that API, you get chart, you get bill for it. Uh, so we got wiser of how we do that uh, without uh, sacrificing the customer's experience. Uh, and we drove a, a bill that got up to like six thousand uh, to down to about six hundred, so one tenth of the cost. And so that was done, you know, based on how the application was written and how often it actually pulled the pulled the API. Uh, more of the um, more of the challenges were in the end user services side, which is where I came from from Verifone. I manage only end user services, and and now being at a startup, you know, I've I've uh, I'm managing. Uh, help managing DevOps in AWS and and getting up to speed in, in, in that. And, uh, and and all our other systems, so whether it's our CRM, our ERP system, uh, all those different systems, uh, I'm you know the administrator for and make sure that the accounts are set up correctly, that the roles, separation of duties, uh, and uh, I learned very quickly how to optimize that as we started going through audits. So uh, auditors will teach you, uh, you can't do that, right? <laughs> yeah, they will. <laughs> uh, the the other good thing is about four or five months uh, working with Reviver, I was asked by the CIO, you're going to be the SOC 2 guy. And I'm like, uh, socks? Because I understood socks from, and I did those socks audits uh, at my previous company, but uh, socks is is more of a financial and SOC 2, even though it came from the financial industry. It's really, it embraces IT and security disciplines and, and all those dips, you know, when you get a SOC 2 type 2, which which Reviver is working on get, uh, getting, um, uh, you learn there's about 180 different things you got to be doing um, from things like change management, from 
penetration testing to vulnerability scans, uh, patch management, uh, uh, risk management, uh, risk management of your vendors. Uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, today when I meet with a vendor, uh, if, I, if we're going to do business with them, I need to see, are they SOC 2 certified? Uh, if they're not, what certifications do they have? Uh, you know, what mitigation processes they have, they can't really supply the services uh, that they're supposed to supply to us. What is the SLA? Uh, all those different things now are in the forefront of my, of my mind when I'm uh, talking to a vendor, not just, oh, what does your product do? Oh, it, it does X, Y, and Z. Oh, that would be very useful for our company. Uh, so now picking a vendor, uh, there's some homework to do and uh and some research to do and and luckily with google you can get almost you know anyone that has any kind of certification any company they publish it on the internet if you want to get the SOC 2 report for microsoft or or google or or, or for for or aw or amazon you can get that yourself and you can just google it and, and download and see where they're standing is okay so how much of the uh, cybersecurity did you have while you were at the prior organization compared to now because when looking at your uh, profile and everything it looked like most of that was more with reviver than it was with verifone that's uh, because of being at a startup or a grow up uh, you wear many hats so we had a compliance team at verifone I, and I did learn about compliance because of executing things like, you know, taking away an admin rights, making sure, you know, uh, your patch level is right, making sure we have a way to inventory people's software. Uh, I think the, the most difficult, uh, um, uh, uh, it, what would you call it? So Adobe ended up uh, asking uh, Verifone, uh, you know, well, uh, we want to see all your machines and if they have Adobe and have you paid for all the licensing, right? And, and, uh, and I nice. Adobe is a tough company. You think of Microsoft with Microsoft, we could just true up, right? You have an EA agreement. Uh, oh, we're using more licenses than we reported. Okay. You owe us X amount of money. And, and it was, it was easier to really manage. Um, and all those problems went away once we locked machines down and created a service catalog that has uh, application catalog that has all the apps uh, and, and people didn't have admin rights. Then they couldn't go and, and sell software like WinZip is a good example. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people had WinZip, which really you need to have a license for. We, so we moved over to 7-Zip and didn't allow uh, WinZip to be allowed uh, to be uh, installed in machines. So, uh, you know, the key uh, to a lot of the compliance is, is don't allow people to make the wrong choice. Automate it, right? Uh, if, if, we, if you build security into your design of how, what people can do, then they can't do something that's going to validate your licensing or your security. Uh, and, and that's the best, I think, strategy to really successfully do that. But all of this sounds like stuff that you had or that there were controls in place for when you were doing the MDM and JAMF. Um, but, but when you moved into the, uh, the grow up, um, none of that infrastructure was there in the beginning, right? That's correct. There was none of that was. So it was uh, literally going manually. Uh, luckily, you know, large companies like Adobe are not going to go after a small, you know, there's an auditor from Adobe for to see if you're valid with your licensing. It's not going to go after a small company because the payout is the amount of time to do it versus the payout. 
they go after the large companies because that's where the big bucks are. And, uh, and that's who they want to audit. You know, they don't, they're not really looking at this. So you have a bit more breathing room. The expectation is a little bit lower. But I already had that kind of anxiety, you know, from, from the large company. So it was as manual as walking around to everybody's computers and see what, what they have. Uh, and there was no visibility. Uh, the first visibility heartbeat that I had was from our antivirus. You know, being able to have an antivirus console that tells me, oh, yeah, that computer is still alive. You know, it, it's still, uh, you know, Joe's uh, computer. And it last time it logged on was, you know, yesterday. And it has the latest definitions, right? But it was at least some sort of heartbeat. So our computer wouldn't walk away. Because, you know, at the time, a lot of developers uh, were in Russia. And so they would take the computer to Russia. And uh, and the way I would have visibility to their to their machines is is through antivirus at first, and and didn't have any MDM solution to to really lean on. And so I found quickly, hey, I got to stand up uh, something like SCCM for Windows. Uh, luckily, I had Mac experience uh, about three years of you know rolling out JamF and, and supporting them. And uh, in the barrier, when we were in the barrier. It was about 7% Mac and, and 30% the PC. Now that we are, uh, uh, you know, in the Sacramento Valley, uh, it's changed. It, we were about 60% PC and 40% Mac. Uh, so, so it changed. But I, I quickly realized, well, let, let me, uh, you know, stand up uh, some sort of solution. So first, I, I, the plan was to use... Uh, uh, now it's called, into and now it's called Endpoint Protection Manager for Microsoft. And uh, what I found that's that's really neat is that I was able to stand up Endpoint Protection Manager uh, way faster than SECM on-prem. Uh, now it doesn't have as many bells and whistles as easily. Uh, it's it's more vanilla. Uh, but I'll take vanilla just to know where my machines are. Are they in compliance? What's their patch level? And being able to control the updates that are coming to those machines. Do you still have people all over the world or is it everybody kind of consolidated into the uh, Sacramento area? Uh, majorities in Sacramento, but we do. We have a sales team that's all around. Um, uh, they're heavy Mac users. Uh, so I, I learned, I decided I, uh, with, with Reviver, uh, I did some research, and my son's a JavaScript developer, and he says, yeah, we're using this thing called Kaji, and they just shipped me a, a, a brand new laptop. I pulled it out of the box, and it set itself up, and, and so I did some research. At the time, uh, I had an intern, and so he, you know he's going to college uh, for IT right now. And uh, I realized, okay, I need some. I need a simple tool I can implement. JamF is, uh, it, it's it's a little more complex. And uh, doing my research, I found that like Kanji was a very simple uh, MDM for for the Apple community to to set up. And we were able to set up uh, Kanji uh, within three weeks. Uh, you know, build the the trust relationship between Apple Business Manager. Uh, being able to pull in the applications, uh, figure out how we can purchase machines. So at the time, uh, none of the machines were purchased under a business account. They were all, you know, one was bought at Best Buy, another went up the Apple Store. <laughs> uh, 
that you know there was uh, somebody wanted the rose gold one another person wanted you know and so I, that was another really uh battle is that people wanted to pick what computer they know i want a gaming machine uh, because i like the keyboard it glows at night and it clicks and and so i why you know i want alienware <laughs> and, and so very, very quickly, uh, you know, I set up accounts uh, with Dell, a business account. This is the company in an Apple business account, and we create standards and say, okay, no, 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 we're we're, we're going to only entertain uh, three types of Macs and three types of PCs. And uh, if you're a developer, you get this. If you're an office person, you get that. And uh, for new people coming in, it was it, it was easy because they didn't know what the standard was. But the the issue was more with the current uh, folks that were with, with the startup already be prior to me before any rules were laid down. So getting the culture uh, change there was a little more difficult. Uh, I guess the good thing is we had a lot of changeovers. So uh, slowly I was able to uh, acclimate new employees to the new new rules and they didn't get early pushback. The pushback always came from the, the previous folks. Uh, and to this day, there's about four of us left from from uh, the Bay Area, and I can say that they're, they're the folks that still to this day sometimes push back, you know. And but I have a good relationship with them, and and I, I you know, convince them, hey, you need an MDM solution. Well, I don't like the fact I can't change my desktop. Why does it have a, I don't want to look at a reviver plate as my only desktop, I want a picture of my family, right? So we've loosened some of the rules, uh, and said, okay, well, maybe that's too stringent, maybe I'm going too corporate too quick. And so we, we've loosened our MDM for things that people want to do, modify their background. And so uh, we didn't, we've now kind of made it more, you know, palatable for, for folks to, to embrace. Uh, so, you know, now we're, we've fully rolled out both MDM solutions and, and we have a lot more control uh, and a lot more protection um, and visibility. So. It just it strikes me in multiple ways. You know, you're talking about all of these things, and and I just I I can't imagine myself going from that structured, well known, well defined, all kinds of SOPs, ways of doing things, um, back to you know kind of the wild wild west. And then you know one of the other thoughts that really hit me while you were talking is what about the intellectual property? How you know I, I it's almost guaranteed that you guys were trying to keep the intellectual property from escaping because um, you don't if you're a grow up you don't want um, competitors to just suddenly show up and and already have the benefit of all the work that you guys have already gone through um, and with having developers um, all over the world in a slightly controlled environment and then trying to get things in line and, and get some of that control um, now of course don't give away any of the things that you're doing to, to help protect and, and keep everything secure. But but what were some of the challenges that you ran into in that world and, and trying to protect this stuff? I, well, I think that was one thing that that uh, was not as difficult as I thought it would be because everything was in a cloud service. So, for example, our code is in GitHub, right? And I think GitHub is kind of uh, well known for that. 
And so you can really control who has access and read only. If the company, uh, if the person leaves the company, you can, you, you know, we right away uh, offboard them off of uh, GitHub if it's a developer. So the good thing is, you know, we use Confluence. You know, we're Atlassian shop, so we use Jira and Confluence. So a lot of intellectual, uh, you know, properties in 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 those cloud services. So that that made it a lot easier. Versus a company like uh, like Verifone that had a lot, a lot of on-prem work, uh, it was an old file servers, right? Uh, with OneDrive, you you have a little bit more control. Um, we we now have it where you can only save your data to OneDrive, and uh, and therefore there's a lot more control that way. And if an employee leaves, we can redirect that data, you know, to their manager or the or replacing employee. Uh, so it it definitely with cloud services, and if if you utilize them correctly. It's less of a challenge, uh, uh, for sure. It's yeah, uh, you bring up a, a point that it it was one of the first real benefits that I snapped to as we made our migration from the on-prem Exchange server to um, Office 365 was when I realized that all of the um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but the the infrastructure was all there for all of the um, different policies, the retention policies, the, um, what do they call it? The the document? Um, DLP. Yeah, yeah, document or data loss prevention. Absolutely. Everything was already up and running, but when you when you had to set it up on-prem, man, you started bare bones from the, the steel, the bare steel, um, having to install the DLP server and then start to build all of the policies and, and just from scratch where, in Office 365, all you got to do is figure out which policies I want to use, instantiate those, and push them out. Yep. Yeah, and, and so with cloud services, uh, they already have security in mind. And so as you learn what those templates are, you, you can implement those templates fairly fairly quickly. On-prem, it, it was a lot more work and a lot more education to figure out how to configure these things on your own. Uh, so... Uh, Definitely, I think that's why with cloud you can work uh, a lot faster. I, I know today that if we were still on, if if, if Reviver was an on-prem shop, I would need probably four people working for me to, to be able to do what I'm doing with one, you know, one IT person and two DevOps people. Uh, and as you can just uh, tear down and, and build things, it uh, just probably ten times faster. Uh, yeah. All you got to do is be willing to pay for the uh, resources as you spin them up, and then you got to remember to turn them off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know we, we're we're and we're making you know more headways as as technologies are advancing. Our platform was designed, uh, and, and it's grown, and we've modified a lot more constantly. But you know, a lot. I think initially when people were started spinning things up in the cloud. They did it in in the same way as they would build an on-prem solution, right? Okay, if I if I have a server here with these VMs running, I'm going to uh, spin up uh, EC2 instances in AWS to do the same thing, right? And so when you build it that way, uh, it's still I mean you get the benefit of being in the cloud and you you can do it quick uh, more quickly. Uh, but now with technologies like Docker containers and Kubernetes, uh, you can become a lot more efficient for your workloads. So now uh, you don't have some EC2 instance that's running and it's, util 20, it's only utilized for 20% of CPU strength. 
And right? now you can look at how much uh, workload you have for what and uh, what services are running on that. And uh, you can combine those uh, in Kubernetes and, and really get the maximum out of the hardware that, that's in the cloud. Uh, so, uh, and uh, you can do all kinds of neat magic, right? With namespaces and it's, it's just amazing what you can do now with, uh, uh, with the latest technologies, right? And then, and then uh, going serverless, right? Serverless uh, databases that are auto-scaling. Uh, you know, databases that are able to read from uh, multi-zones, right? So you can be fault-tolerant and, uh, you know, create a good dis a disaster recovery uh, environment. Uh, it's, it, it really, uh, a lot of these service solutions by cloud providers, uh, you don't have to worry about the patching anymore, right? The patching is no longer your issue. And, and, and a lot of times, patching is, is a big problem, not to necessarily just to apply the patch, but what does the patch break? So a lot of times yeah. you apply a patch and you go, okay, now that doesn't work. With serverless, that's uh, less of an issue. Uh, so it's yeah, just amazing uh, how quickly technology is progressing. Uh, my you know, first computer, uh, when I was 14, my parents, uh, my best friend, his parents were school teachers. So my parents went and asked them, like, hey, we should get our son a computer. I got a Macintosh Plus. And all it did, no, there was three and a half disk. I did have a 386 later on with uh, still the floppy, the five and a half inch, right? But you booted it off the three, three, three and a half inch in my Macintosh Plus with a black and white screen. And I thought I was like the coolest kid. You know, nobody in my class had a Mac. You know, uh, their parents might have had one, but they didn't have one themselves. And, it's, and so and you look at your iPhone today and that Mac is like <laughs> doesn't have, you know, none of the power. Their iPhone. Nothing. Right. Um. <laughs> I another thought hit me, and that is that, that we're so easily interchanging and talking about a multi-cloud environment, and and you know we're talking about Office three sixty five. You're talking about AWS. Um, have you done anything with the multi-cloud environment so that you've got redundancy between the two clouds? Now, obviously, you know Office three sixty five is a different beast, but with the um, all of the containers, all of the services that you're running, the um, serverless um, applications for the SQL databases or the databases. It's not necessarily SQL since it's uh, the serverless. Um, have you have you set up redundancy between the clouds or are you setting up like regional redundancy within the primary cloud that you're doing all of the DevOps over here and then the office and stuff over here? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, uh, for example, so we we keep them separate. We we were not trying to run our workloads that that talk to our digital plates. That's all done in AWS, and and I, with all the regions that are available, and, and how you know how how uh, uh, resilient uh, you know AWS really is. Now there were two outages that, and and it did impact us a little bit. Luckily, you know, if our plate doesn't talk to the platform for a little bit. Because there's an outage, it's not it, it, the user doesn't know. It might be like, hey, I looked at my app and and I didn't see the last trip I went to, and then two hours later, oh, it came back. Right, that's probably as work as bad as it gets. Uh, but we are building as we're becoming illegal in more states, and we have a drive a larger uh, driving uh, driving population. We are 
uh, now expanding to other regions within AWS to make sure that if the Oregon data center goes down, uh, we can still work in North Virginia. Uh, and and so and you know making it where you have a hot standby. Uh, what's what's uh, neat now is that you know we we do everything in Terraform, which is really infrastructure as, as code. So uh, you know as we're building out now Kubernetes and re redesigning our platform, uh, really it, it's that once we have uh, once we have all this uh, configured, you really could have somebody come in and run a couple scripts and build everything out in a matter of minutes or hours. Uh, so uh, infrastructure as code is now becoming really uh, popular because uh, having a hot standby is expensive, right? If, if I have to have an EC2 instance or, or some serverless solutions sitting on standby in another, in another uh, data center in AWS, uh, you're spending money on that. And and uh, and the and the chances that you're actually going to need it is very low, and you're paying pretty high costs. So, you know, there's different uh, disaster recovery solutions, but what more and more people are doing is uh, building only the things that that take time. Uh, so they might have the database already sitting there, but that they can spin up all the other things, all their EC2 instances. And uh, very quickly with with uh, using uh, you know like things like uh, Terraform. Uh, so infrastructure as code has really helped disaster recovery where you don't need hot standbys unless you're you know. And I'm not saying every customer or every company doesn't have a justification for hot standbys, but uh, you can do a lot with infrastructure as code where you can not you don't need hot standbys anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that infrastructure as a code is really kind of a cool idea of being able to run a script and fire up <laughs> like a whole infrastructure, not not even just setting up a server with the whatever OS or or applications that you want on it, but but setting up all of the different containers with all of the different services and then making sure that they're all ready talking to each other, that they're all configured and, and just ready to go. Um, we haven't really made it. We we've started talking about it and started to set things up like that so that we can have some of that um, instant launch or instant recovery capabilities like you're talking about. But oh man, it's, it's wow. very powerful. It, it really yeah. is. Uh, with Kubernetes, it gets a little more complicated. The systems are a, a little bit more uh, uh, harder to manage, even though it's much more efficient. So they use something called Helm charts. And, and uh, but the nice thing about them is that they take a long time to build and you, and it takes a really high level uh, skill to build them. Uh, but once you have them built, it, it really helps you with even deploying applications and, and, uh, and how you uh, update your application. So we're releasing new firmware for our place. We're releasing new iOS apps and, and Android apps uh, uh, almost on a bi-weekly basis. Uh, and uh, and uh, with Kubernetes, a lot of those items are also auto-scaling. So as your demand goes up, you can, uh, Kubernetes is set up where it'll just spin up. Uh, and there's horizontals uh, and verticals uh, 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 spin-ups. And, and then you can create entire new clusters. So it, it, if you put a lot of work uh, into it up front, uh, you can really have a self-healing environment. 
put a lot of work into it up front. Isn't that like everything IT? As long as we take the time to figure out what we're trying to do <laughs> and we define it first, then then we get real good at hitting that target. <laughs> I, you know, when I left Verifilm, there were some things that I was, that I built, like a new camera a server for a new camera system. And I was like, okay, this is a stopgap. I mean, I just built this. This is until we implement a, a new uh, camera system globally and a new a door access system. So I, you know, I lived through uh, three different implementation of door access systems and 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 surveillance. And it's interesting. You build a kind of a just a mock of something, and next thing it becomes production for the next five six years. So you got to be careful. Uh, <laughs> you got to be careful. Sometimes you're like, okay, this is only for the short term. This is not meant, you know. And the next thing it's used for years and years. So I've learned now if 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 you start using it in a production environment, uh, build it right because however you build it, it's probably going to stay that way for a long time. And probably some other IT schmucks going to inherit it later and go, what were these people thinking, right? Like, yeah. this, this is like Frankenstein. And you go, well, it was never meant to be production. It's just... Yeah, it was just a proof of concept. concept. A proof of... A production proof of concept. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I have experienced that all too many times myself. So yeah, don't don't develop in production. <laughs> develop in development and keep them separated and don't give it all all the capabilities. <laughs> Absolutely. And and so uh, for sure, right? You got to have your lower environments for testing and, and you got to keep your production very uh, very separate. And for SOC 2, that's even um, oh, yeah. more all your compliance all your compliance, right? Uh, how do people come into the production environment? Uh, how do you assign roles that who touched what? You know, does it match the change management tickets uh, when when a change was made? Can you go and report to an auditor? Okay, I want to see this change management ticket. Okay, I want to actually see how this change was implemented. Who implemented it at what time? Who approved it? Uh, was it verified? Uh, did, was there testing done? Do you have a rollback plan? All those things uh, you got to have. Uh, uh, you, especially at a startup, everyone's a security person. That's a, that that touches anything in the infrastructure. Uh, so it, it, how do you how do you train the um, startup mentality or the startup people? You know, the ones who are don't want you to control them because they're you're going to slow them down. You're going to keep them from being able to do what they they were really hired for which was to to make make the blinky lights blink how do you um how do you go about getting them to buy in on the SOC 2 compliance or is it just part of is it an easier sell than i think it is i I'm, think, the, I'm just, I think this i think the best way is help make them be uh, part of the audit right have them uh, be uh, on the call with an auditor right and uh, so, you know, uh, my intern that is now, uh, he's not no longer, I call him an intern, but he's not, you know, he's my desktop support guy. Uh, during audit, I said, hey, I, I need help pulling this data, this proof. And he goes, wow, this ticket's kind of missing the, uh, what, uh, you know, HR approval. Well, we have it in a chat, but we don't have it in there. I said, well, go ahead and paste it into the ticket from the chat that shows the proof. He goes, well, we can't do this. I, I'm not going to make cha changes until HR puts it in the ticket. I, you know, this is not... And so they the wheels start the they realize the implications right because if you don't pass that audit you can't do bigger business uh, and right. you can't earn the trust of your customers and especially when you have to earn the trust of of a state right you have to do it right 
And so when you start involving uh, your staff uh, in the audits, even if you don't really need them, uh, and you can do it all yourself, you shouldn't do it yourself. You should involve them. You should let them taste what what I have to go through an audit. And when they get a taste of it, they start realizing, whoa, this, okay, now I understand why we're doing this. Uh, sometimes they call it bureaucratic work, right? Uh, why, why do I have to do this bureaucratic work? Why can't I just uh, push the buttons, make it work and, and go work on something else? And uh, once you start uh, so having to spend time with auditors, they, 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 they start seeing the, the reason and uh, why we do what are these additional steps. Yeah, that's those are some awesome points. Get the everyday people involved with the audits. Let them see what the reason is, because then, then they they get some ownership of it. They get some better understanding than than oh, they're off talking to the auditors, and and now we get to go spend more time at the water cooler, <laughs> or get that extra cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> I've had this other idea ringing in my head, and and I just I. It's such a, a a back and forth idea. Like, uh, you know, I I started looking at, at what Reviver does and the electronic plates, and I'm thinking, oh man, I could just see this as part of a movie. As somebody gets one of these plates, puts it on their car, and they hack the plate so that they can change their license plate as they're driving around. Um, and it, I'm sure that it would be great advertising, um, but I'm also sure that any of the uh, state agency people watching that would then start going oh my god we can't have that <laughs> absolutely so. i think that's one of the most common questions so you know i'm a big gym rat and i'm uh, at the gym and, and a lot of my gym friends go hey so can i just like change the number if i'd like to and i laugh i said no you can't change the number you can modify our with our plate in california you can uh, modify your banner at the bottom Right. We have pre-approved DMV banners and you can look at the, the different codes and you can apply and request like, hey, I want this new banner. And then the DMV actually reviews that time to time. They approve it and we add additional slogans and, and things to the banner. Uh, but absolutely, you know, uh, we we do uh, uh, we, we have to on a regular basis do penetration testing of not just the, our cloud environment, but also of the plate itself. And. Uh, and so uh, we've we've uh, you know uh, done a lot of work to make sure that 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 and uh, to make sure that could not happen. Uh, if you tamper with our plate, it'll go into detachment. So if you if you try to say, well, you know what, I'll take it apart and I'll I'll mess with the circuitry or I'll uh, you know we 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 thought of everything for that, right? The sec the second you take a plate uh, off a car, it's no longer actually a government ID. It's now just a display. When we when we ship a customer a plate, it's not a government ID. Uh, if it was a government ID, which originally we used to provision plates and send them to customers, uh, the very at the very beginning, uh, at least at the system, and uh, we found very quickly one you have to insure it. The second a plate actually has a number, you have to lock it under DMV. Uh, you know, you have to have like three parameters, how you lock it away. Uh, but you you don't, you know, when our plate is in a warehouse, it's not a government ID. It's just a display, just like a television right. you would buy or anything else. It doesn't have any government uh, validation to it. Uh, 
Yeah, so you, you know, I, I'm thinking of all of these different kinds of things, like trying to make it bling and and have the neon lights and having custom little banners across the bottom and stuff like that. You know, the things that would make it kind of fun and and customizable. But but yeah, you're right. You know, if a government ID, I I can't get an LED version of my my um, driver's license and have it light up a room or be able to be a, a flashlight or, you know, change my hair color on demand and, and things like that. So um, makes a lot of sense as, as you speak of it in that, that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It, the, the interesting thing about Reviver and I feel, uh, you know, very lucky that we touch so many different technologies. I, I, I never knew when I joined a Reviver, how many different technologies uh, we utilize for something that hey, I have an app on my phone and I can make my plate the background white or, or black. I can change the banner message at the very bottom of the plate and uh, and uh, and the telematics function in, in our pro, which is the wired plate. Uh, there are behind the scenes in our platform, we're running so many different technologies. Uh, it, it's it's amazing. You touch everything, for, you know, from Spark Apache to to uh, Kafka to you know uh, uh, load balancers. It, it just it, it goes on and on and on. I, I mean, I don't want to give us our you know uh, yeah, don't keep all the technologies, but I just you know threw a few out there, and it, it, it's a lot of different technologies. And what people don't realize is that most of their apps on their phone are talking to the cloud, and those are Linux servers. Right. Uh, so, you know, in in the mid 90s, I thought oh, Linux is not really going to survive. Right. Uh, because Microsoft has such a huge stronghold on the industry. But in fact, it flourished so much that they have to start uh, supporting uh, Linux and, and Windows 10 because they were losing the developer community because a Mac is already a Linux and it's, it's running BSD. So you're already native. Uh, when you're talking to a Cisco switch or you're talking to a Linux server and with windows, you were on an Island. You're like, okay, it's a great office machine and you can do finance work on it. That's great for spreadsheets, but it doesn't talk to, you know, you go on a plane, you watch, you know, well, now they don't have the TVs anymore. It's, it's you know, you watch on your iPad, but uh, for the, you know, all the, all that software was all Linux run. Right. Uh, uh, our, you know, smart refrigerators, you know, all these smart devices, they're really running a modified version of Linux. The kernel has been modified. It's designed to do a certain purpose. And and uh, and so the, the Linux world and the open source world, it it uh, it lives on. And uh, it lives on stronger than ever. Yeah. And. You bring up an interesting point there. I hadn't even really thought about how much everything is run on that, um, especially, I, I mean, just the whole infrastructure as a, as a code, um, all of the combined servers, all of the, one of my friends just, he constantly just bags on the thought or the, the statement of the cloud. He's like, it's just somebody else's server. <laughs> Yes, but but you know those those data centers, those purpose built data centers that are just built for running of any code, and then just the ways that you can. It's a multi-tenant um, environment that we get a 
design whatever we want, whatever we can conceptualize. Um, it's yeah, there's a lot of Linux out there. <laughs> and now, like, let's say you want to write, run very, just a little bit of code, and you go, it. I only have this one function, but do I spin up a whole EC2 instance that's dedicated for one function? With Lambda functions, you can just run one piece of code, right? Uh, uh, for example, you know, we're, we're uh, looking at Amazon Connect. I, and I took a, a two-day workshop on Amazon Connect where we built a hotel booking system, right? All automated that can identify who you are, ask for a pin, and recognizes you, compares that in a database, in a SQL database, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and runs a certain function. And that's all it does. It, it, you know, and you tell it verbally, I mean, they have... Uh, all these different now uh, applications where, in the cloud where you have voice recognition already built in, right? Uh, you don't have to have recordings. You can tell it how to sound and you say, I want you to have a Texan a newscaster uh, accent. And you can do that. It's actually in there. It, it, you can, and you say, you know what, though? I want them to talk a little faster. A little slower or i want to and, and you can do all that right now in the cloud like it's it just at your fingertips it's it's just amazing uh so we built this in the two-day workshop a whole hotel phone system you know for with amazon connect to be able to take reservations without any agents right uh so it's just amazing what 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 is uh what in the cloud has been built. I, I, it's amazing what a little bookstore has done, right? Uh, I, I worked for Hewlett Packard uh, back in like uh, uh, from from uh, ninety seven to two thousand one, and I remember Carly Farina saying, "Yeah, we just want to deal with uh, Amazon. They're, we're going to kick out all the Sun uh, Microsystem servers, and we're going to use HP servers, right?" And I'm like, "What's this little bookstore, right?" And then I kind of looked it up, like, "Oh wow, I, I don't have to go to the library. I can order." Any, they got every book you could think of, right? And uh, and I look at it. That was practice for for Jeff Bezos to, to that. Hey, if you can catalog, you know, ten thousand, hundred thousand items, why can't you catalog uh, millions of products, right? It doesn't have to be a book. And and then he and he realized later on. Wait a minute, my servers are only used during the holidays, and then they're sitting doing nothing. You know, and I pay, and they're pretty penny. How can I find a way, a revenue stream to pay for these servers so I can grow my bookstore without having the bookstore pay for these servers? And so at first it was about designing, a, you know, a product to utilize the idle time of the servers that were sitting around doing nothing. And uh, and now I forget how many. It's like they have 150 different products in the cloud just in AWS. Azure is the same thing. It, it's just amazing. Uh, what what uh, what's available now? Uh, I think a lot of IT folks want to buy a lot of products from from other vendors. I try to stay vanilla in in whatever we implement, and and not do a lot of customization because when the customization is what can one it costs money in developers, right? Developers are not cheap, right? And then when you have to upgrade, when a certain version, let's say of Java, is obsolete because it has security vulnerabilities, and you build all these customizations. Uh, now you gotta you gotta redesign. That's expensive. It's painful. I think that's one of the reasons I, I'm shocked. Like for example, Hewlett Packard, uh, they're a computer company. You would think they would have state of the art 
systems to use internally within themselves. They don't. You know, uh, I, I have a family member that 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 works for them that uh, you know has to still does do things over spreadsheets because can't get the right information out of because now the information that's needed is in five different databases and some of them are 15, 20 years old, right? Uh, so the nice thing of being in the cloud is that you can uh, you can change vendors really quick. Uh, and uh, I'll give you an example. You know, we use uh, Concur for our expenses. I'm getting. I think it's kind of archaic now. I know it's the kind of the one that's the most common in the industry, and they're number one. Uh, but I would rather go to a platform that is more modern. You know, that's uh, written on on, new, on more modern languages that was built in the cloud by intent. And it wasn't, it's running on old AS400 mainframes and then you bolt on a web interface, right? And you wonder why. That's my world. <laughs> I'll give you a current, like what I'm dealing with today, our, our controller goes, hey, people are having problems uh, submitting expenses. It's it's convoluted with what, what they are. You know, the, under auto, they might do a rental car, they might do gas. They, they, and so we want to just change the descriptions to be simple for people where they can't make a mistake. They, they, it's very intuitive. You can't do that in that space. You have to have the developer do it. I can't, as an administrator, change those things. Uh, so we're looking at things like Expensify, you know, and some of these newer systems that, that are much more uh, fluid and, and you can modify things yourself and you don't need to create a ticket and wait two weeks for it to be done. And you can just on the fly make the modification done and, and go on with your business. Right. And and that's one of the beauties of, of um, I keep talking to different vendors and I'm telling them, you know, what I want is to work with companies that use modern technology and modern methodologies and, and the ability to just spin up um, a like service. And as long as you make sure that you accept the same inputs and provide the outputs that you want or the same outputs, you can change the code around however you want in the middle of it. And then um, as long as the data, you just snap that new piece in place or, or you get a copy of the data, uh, or the the data stream, then spin up that that new service, test it, make sure that everything works great, and then when you're ready, you just shut down one, snap the other piece into place, fire it up, and then you're running on the new one. Um, it's, and so uh, many people, they just they're like, wait, what? <laughs> spin up a new one? What do you mean? <laughs> even even some of the geeks like us. <laughs> It, it, yeah, it's 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 amazing. You know, I do some consulting work uh, on the side, and, and uh, there's a pest control company that I was working with, and they said we can't be compliant, right? And uh, I, I looked, and, and they were you know running access databases on prem that are you know 1997. We're like, yeah, but we have all these customization, and I said you could do all this in the cloud. I recommend keep your system. There's no, I wouldn't touch to upgrade it. Uh, I would I would create a whole new environment in the cloud, uh, you know, the test environment, test all of it, and then just do a cutover to the whole new environment. Don't use any of the old uh, tools you use. Yeah. Not- if anything, grab all of the data and just put it in the new home and then go. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, and, it, you can do it. And, and now it's like instead of your iPad talking to an access database, you know, you can be much more uh, effective of doing it in the cloud. 
So let me take a, a completely different tack than any of the, the stuff that, that this has been a great conversation. I'm really enjoying it. Um, what are the differences that, that you've um, experienced and the challenges with dealing with the management and going from Verifone from the 6,000 people person company down to the uh, 55, 85, 35, 85 um, to the, the grow up. And, um, you know, like, like I know that you spent a lot of time talking to the CEO the other day. And so um, that, that one-on-one -on -one conversation that you get to have with the CEO compared to what it was like dealing with management at Verifone. What are, tell me a little about those experiences and, and what have you learned going from the the large back down to the small and what like what are some of the hard learned lessons that you're willing to share to those that are coming up behind us and and the ones that are trying to learn um well i want to do stuff with technology but i have no idea where to go and but startups sound great because i'm going to make lots of money there um you know any any tips tricks thoughts so I'm fortunate enough that, that our CEO has it was an IT guy in his past life. Uh, uh, he he's extremely intelligent. So uh, now there's also I think uh, there's been you know at first because uh, he's he's the second CEO that I've had at, at Reviver. Uh, you know, I think at first uh, because uh, he's got a vast knowledge in IT. Uh, there was, uh, you know, he questioned some of the things of how they were implemented. I told him, well, it's done differently in the cloud. I'll give you an example, lock screen. Hey, we need to uh, uh, implement a lock screen, right? And this is before we had Import Protection Manager to do it, right? Uh, well, it, on the, in the on-prem world, you, and he knew how to do this because he did this in his past life. He's like, no, no, just go to the domain controller, add the policy to the right OU, and you're done. Like, this is like, I, I, why is this taking so long? Why are you waiting for an MDM solution? I go, you can't do that. Unless you run a hybrid, uh, uh, hybrid domain controller between Azure AD, uh, and you could do that, AD Connect, uh, and we don't want to go. We don't want to go that complicated because I'm trying to keep things simple. So if I hire uh, somebody that's uh, going to college, they can manage it, right? I don't need uh, an, an Active Directory expert that you got to pay, you know, a lot more money for just for Active Directory when you're a small shop. And and so at first there was you know there was a lot of questioning of uh, I feel like you're overcomplicating it, but uh, I, I I believe over time I got his trust and 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 we have lock screen but now it's done through our MDM solution right it's done through uh, Microsoft Endpoint Protection Manager so some of the things that were done on prem were done differently and it took time to convince him with results right so I think. Uh, you, you know, gaining the trust of uh, of your executive team, uh, it it takes time. You you have to prove yourself, and I think it doesn't matter with you if you're in a large company or a small company. You have to prove that uh, that uh, your suggestions uh, are effective, and then you got to show that result that it, it was effective. So build uh, trust through results. Build trust through results. Yes. Uh, uh, I know one of the things that I have an issue with is that uh, I'm a little bit, uh, I, I describe too much. I give too much fl uh, flavor and color to a, uh, to a story. 
And, you know, executives don't have time for that. They're like, okay, what's the bottom line? I want to know the bottom line. And so I'm learning now that you almost want to give them the bottom line and they're going to ask you questions of how you got to that bottom line. Uh, I have the tendency, and I'm, I've been changing it, is, is that uh, I want to explain to them how I got to the bottom line, right? But they don't have time for that. They don't, they don't want to hear, you know, well, the, this is the, the reason we picked this, or you can't do this, and here's how it works. You know, they want to hear the bottom line. And, and you want to make it almost where uh, the bottom line has, uh, is, is, is almost bland enough where they go, okay, I don't understand the bottom line. And they start asking you questions, right? And you already have the answers for it. And then you only give them the answer that they're asking. And now you don't have to have this colorful description of your solution. And you don't have to watch their eyes roll back. And you don't have to see them get that blank look. Um, you know, my my CFO told me a long time ago, he's like, Mike, just tell me what time it is. Quit building me a watch and tell me what fucking time it is. Yes. And, then, and now my kids tell me, Dad, quit mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, my desktop support analyst, he goes, you have the most colorful stories. I go, well, you know, since I'm your boss, I guess you have to listen to him, right? <laughs> but but with, with the executives, it, it, it isn't that way because they are busy, right? They, they're dealing with finance issues. They're dealing with personnel issues, with growth, you know, with marketing. I mean, they're dealing with so many different aspects that they can't just uh, be focused on IT. And let's face it, in IT, when we're doing a good job, nobody says anything. They only uh, think about IT when something's broke, right? Then all right. of a sudden, they're like, "Oh yeah, we have IT, we have an IT department. This isn't working. I, I better, you know, create a ticket or give them a call." Or, but nobody says, "Hey, today I had no issues. Every system worked perfectly. I was able to do my job." Hey, thank you for for the good job you did to keep our systems running. And and. Uh, that doesn't happen in the IT world. And right. we just have to accept that. Go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that we've run into, and, and thank God we're in this position, is it's instead of it just being um, they think of us when things are broken, they also think of us when things are tough or when when they want to go faster. So they're, they're coming to us going, hey, help me find a solution. Help me create a way to do this. And so now, instead of it, you know, for the longest time, it was exactly what you're talking about. The The best day was the day that everybody forgot you were there. <laughs> but now, now it's um, everybody needing our help and needing us to help them move faster, do more, um, achieve more, build more, you know, just uh, the improvements that we can offer, that IT offers itself just innately. Um, technology offers it when leveraged correctly yeah i i you know and i uh, the previous year we had uh, the last CEO, you know uh told me hey david you don't need to explain to a customer service person let's say how a system works in the back end they just need to know how to use it right uh i like telling people uh how it works and the reason why is because uh, if you know how things work under the hood and you don't need to go maybe in all the detail, but just a kind of a high level how it works, because then they know how to use a system better or they can report the problem better. Right. It's broken. When you get a ticket and it says it's broke. 
and, and you go, I, I need more information. I need a screenshot. What were you doing during the time? What's the error, right? Um, yeah. and, and so if you teach them kind of how the, the things work from a high level, they do a better job of reporting problems to you. And I also want, you know, it, it, there's a lot of room uh, for automation. And a lot of times people are doing the same thing every single day. Right. And they're like, I, I have to work 10 hours a day just to keep up with business. Right. And and I love to have that time with them and say, can I see what you're doing, for, you know, 10 hours a day? Or is there anything you're doing that that we could offload from you? And they go, what do you mean? Like, give it to another person? No, 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 no. Offload it like you don't like no person has to do it. Yeah, right? Make the computer do the work. And make the, yeah. And you'll get the same result because, you know, if Johnny comes in hungover and decides to put press the wrong buttons, you know, you don't have to deal with that because the computer is going to do it the same way every time. You, once you get it to work and you got the automation in place, it's scalable. You can grow now. Right. And as you yeah. get more and more customers on board, it, it's still manageable. You know, scalability is is really the key. And so you have to have it in the forefront of your mind. Is it scalable? If it's not, we're doing something wrong. Then the implementation is not right. Yeah, yeah. If it's if you can only spin up so much so many resources and you're gonna peak at that point, is is it worth doing? Sometimes it is, but sometimes if you can figure out that way to make it where you can go to the next level, even much further than the, the person that's immediately asking for the solution today, if you can see how we can get to a scale of 10 for tomorrow, that's we I do find we have some young people that were interns and then became and uh, a lot of them are, you know, in other departments, you know, sales or, you know, uh, customer success, but they're hungry for knowledge. And I love mentoring, working with people uh, and teaching them. And it's amazing. You get them to say, you don't have to do that. You know, you, this power, power automate. You can actually submit that form automatically and add it to a spreadsheet. And you don't have to go and cut and paste that email and put it in a spreadsheet. And like this, get, like you're going to be doing this all the time. And as we get more customers, you're going to be doing more. And, and I give them access to the tool and, and, and I, you know, I guide them on how to implement it. And their lights, like also they come to work and they're learning something that's going to benefit the company and it's going to be benefit their personal growth too. And, and, you know, and that makes, uh, you know, collecting a paycheck a lot, a lot better when you have that purpose, you know, mentorship. Uh, I, I really feel that our country compared to some of the other countries is really lacking internships in colleges. Uh, it, it, Germany is a good example yeah. of, a strong internship country. You can't graduate and get a bachelor's degree without doing an internship in in, in whatever uh, you know degree you're getting. You have to work, uh, you know, uh, for a company for not for, you know for almost for free or for you know low pay, but you have to get that experience or you can't graduate. And I think we need to have the same thing uh, in this country uh, to make our young people, you know, cutting edge. It's is it's really in the mentorship. It's our job as as the more experienced IT people to teach our younger people, you know, how to embrace IT and leverage it. We have a, a guy that just started with us. He just graduated back in May, and uh, what's it been? That's the fifth month. It's the ninth month. In three months, he says that we've taught him more in three months than he learned in four years of college. 
because because he's actually doing it and it's not just the concept yes he got some of the concepts and they gave him a, a foundation layer that he's relied on with what he's doing for us but the practical application of what he's doing has opened up his eyes in ways that the classes never did and I found that to be true myself. You know, I, unfortunately, I didn't do much for internships while I was working on my bachelor's. And when I started looking for a job, that was it was a killer. Yeah, it, it made it so I couldn't find a job. Well, have you done anything <laughs> besides bartend and go to school for computers? <laughs> so Absolutely. Uh, I actually had a, uh, in my previous company a, a guy that had a master's degree. And I had to let him go four months later because he didn't have the troubleshooting uh, uh, skills. You have a problem, you cut it in half. Where's the problem now? Oh, you know, process of elimination, right? And you can, that's not just an IT thing. That's if you're troubleshooting an electrical problem at your house, a car problem. It doesn't matter, you know, a health problem. You know, okay, I take these things out of my diet. Am I still having, you know, acid reflux? Okay, I'm going to add one thing back in, right? All these basic kind of, uh, troubleshooting 101 principles that you that that uh, some people have it and some people don't. I think you can teach it to everybody, but some people embrace it very quickly and, and like the light bulb comes up. Oh, I get it. This is how I troubleshoot. And and tr I love troubleshooting and finding problems. That that's one of my favorite things in IT. Right. And and there's been times I spent you know late nights banging my head on something. But I guarantee you, when I solve that problem and I spent six hours on it. Even if I have that problem 10 years later, I remember exactly what the solution is. <laughs> In there, and yes, definitely. Like, uh, for me, it's always the, the problem solving or the puzzle solving. You know what? There's got to be a way that I can do this. There's got to be a way. And so, yeah, that troubleshooting mentality, that, that seemed to be one of those gifts that I had. You know, just that innate talent of being able to find something that's not working and track it down you know okay well it's not the inputs all of the inputs are solid so what's coming out okay where's it where's it change and just yeah the different troubleshooting techniques to to bring it down to where is the problem and then once you can find out where the problem is now you can try to figure out what the problem is <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, learning how to parse log files, right, and, and go through and, and see uh, in SCCM, when we were rolling SCCM in the last company, uh, they have, you know, SCCM has a parser and you have to learn how the parser works. When it's line, you know, with the last, uh, you know, part of the log, when it's highlighted in red, that's actually not the problem. It's something be right before it, before the failure, right? And then you... And you learn through experience how to interpret these and you become, you know, then as I was teaching, uh, you know, other desktop support guys, uh, they, they were, they're like, how do you know this? And, and you go, it's time. It takes time, right? It, it just takes practice and time, just like anything else, learning a language or learning anything is, then you know where to look for what and how to look at it and how to filter it correctly and get all the noise out and, and see where, where the issue is. And it's, it's, it's really, a lot of it is just putting the time and trial and error, but mentorships, working with somebody that's more senior level that already has those skills that's something that in in a school lab you won't really learn like 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 you do in real life. Yeah, for sure. Um, the the real world experience, 
Yeah. You know, I, there was one of the other things that you said earlier that that I really kind of love, and I I think I'm going to bring it to my team meeting tomorrow, as a matter of fact, and that is, you know, cut to the bottom line, um, leave them with enough questions to start asking, or leave them with enough mystery to start asking the questions, and um, let them discover what they need to know about what you're trying to give to them. Versus, because I get caught in that same trap of trying to explain it or come up with the correct metaphor or or a metaphor that um, somewhat results or or appears like what the problem is, and and I've got one of my system admins, man, he comes up with these metaphors, and there's times where I just like, no. Oh, I, I wish I could come up with one right now to tell you, like the stories that he comes up with. But the the analogies he uses sometimes, I'm just like, we can't explain it to them like that. <laughs> well, and what did I think? Albert Einstein says, if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. Well, and I can't tell you how many times that, like, I'm trying to troubleshoot some code that I wrote, and as I'm trying to explain it to somebody, it becomes obvious what my problem was, but. While I'm sitting there trying to think it through, I cannot see it. But as soon as I try to verbalize it, it it opens up different pathways, and then suddenly, right there, there's the problem. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of times, if you can make it sound simple, it, people have more confidence in you that you actually get what your what your solution is or what you're presenting. Uh, if you if you start, even though you might have all those inputs and everything you're saying is valid. Uh, it 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 kind of it shows uh, that you're not totally confident in the solution. Uh, when you can simplify the solution, and and then when they ask questions, the questions line up, right? The questions will point back. Uh, especially, you know, uh, there's some executives that are they're not that savvy, and and some are, right? Uh, I know that uh, RSTO can kind of smell BS pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> and and so uh, there's there's times where I have an approach, and then he'll ask me questions. I'm like, oh man, he's got even a better approach. I already know where he's going with this. I'm like, crap. I mean, because you know, there's not just one solution to things. Sometimes there's there's the more complex solution is the simpler solution. Yep. Oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've walked in there. I I need help with this. I or I I. I just come to it with one approach and then exactly like you're talking about, they start to ask questions and it's just like, Oh, Oh crap. <laughs> All right. I see where you're going. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for showing me why you're there and I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> but those are all learning experiences, right? Yeah, uh, they are. You got to take them. You got to learn from them. You got to grow from them, and you embrace them, um, and just grow with it. My favorite is learning on, from other people's mistakes more than my own mistakes, right? Because uh, I've been enough. So, like some of the projects I'm managing right now, uh, some of the gotchas I'm looking for, it's not because I'm some intelligent person that that like just you know woke up uh, in the middle of the night. Oh. I need to make sure I'm covering this. It's a milestone-based project. Make sure that we got everything's in the sow correctly. Uh, that there's contingencies if it doesn't go right. You know, all those things built in. 
that has happened and evolved from being on projects that went south, right? Being on projects that a lot of money and effort got invested into and the result was not that satisfactory or, or, or we, we didn't even get to the end game, right? And then, so then you analyze that and go, where do we go wrong? Well, you know what? We didn't do a good discovery before we even started the project. You know, a <laughs> lot of times people want to start and they haven't really done a discovery. How does the, the old legacy system work? Why does it do certain things, right? Yeah. And some well, of us, What's like, the goal? <laughs> Yeah, what's the what's the goal and result, and and uh, and so what if you so when you start learning that hey every project needs to have a really good strong uh, discovery, really good planning. Uh, if I think that you spend more time in discovery and planning than actually executing, you should. You definitely should. It, it's the same thing. Like you know, if if you're if you have four developers but ten QA people. Maybe there's something wrong with your developers, right? <laughs> because, uh, it, it, again, if you develop code properly, uh, you should have test routines in, in your development. So, uh, you know, my son, he's a JavaScript developer for a, a realtor company at 29 years old and very successful at it. Uh, and his big mantra is, I don't write code without writing a test process first. So he'll write the test process before he really writes the code. He'll write code for the test before he actually writes the code. And he's really big into that. So then he can run things through and he knows exactly what piece of his code is, has issues and needs attention. Interesting. And this is a different way of doing it, right? Uh, it's, but he had an internship, you know, right, uh, putting together a, a Java, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, a JavaScript plugin for Twitter. And worked with, uh, you know, with a few people that have taught him this discipline, and he's done very well with it. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting way of approaching it. And I, I honestly hadn't heard that yet, um, but it makes sense. So we're, we're getting to that point, David. Um, is there anything that you want to bring up? Anything that you want to promote, bring out to the world or, or show off? Uh, any uh, personal achievements? You got a, a website that you're doing on the side. You got a side hustle that's making you some money. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a little fu uh, funny, but I, I, uh, I haven't started. It's just a concept, and now somebody's going to uh, take it. And that's okay if they beat no. me to it. And it's more of a joke than anything else with my wife. But uh, I want to build an app that you talk into, that a man talks into, and it translates it to the best outcome that your wife or a female could could take. <laughs> and I, you know, and I probably will charge like $3.99 in the app store for it. And, it, you know, it'll be like Siri, but it's, gonna, it's going to, you know, convert it into, uh, in, into the best uh, way uh, that a female could, could embrace the message that a man has. Oh, man, I, I could get in a lot of trouble just coming up with answers for that one right away. <laughs> As one of my daughters walks by right now. <laughs> 
but I just think that 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 uh, you know an application like that it would be a great gag gift, right? But but if you actually made it where it was a dis- decent application, right? And now with everything in the cloud, uh, you can do that with voice recognition, with uh, artificial intelligence, with machine learning. It, you you could actually build something like that, right? And uh, who, who knows where that where, where that could get us. You'd have to give it some way of voting so that I could let you know how much trouble it got me in with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you can, it for, you can use it on a date, you know? You go on your first date, and you want to say all the right things. And so you say it in there. It's like, uh-uh, you don't say it that way. That'll be perceived the, the wrong way, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, man. Hold on one second. <laughs> exactly. the, uh, hey, there's the name of the app, Sereno. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I like that. Awesome. Well, well, Dave, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope everybody else has enjoyed it. And I hope you too enjoyed it. And that, that now that you're uh, basically done with your first podcast, that you had fun. Yes, I did. Thank you, Mike. And I appreciate you inviting me uh, on the podcast. It, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I truly appreciate your patience with us and, and coming out and, and talking with us. So, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a good night.